Welcome to Behind the Wings, a new podcast by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum, and we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Episode 1. Look at us. We've made it, folks. I'm your host, Rick Crandall, and with me is Wings Over the Rockies President and CEO, John Barry. John, what do we have for folks today? Today's show is a conversation with Keith Sywell, who is CEO and founder of the General Carl Spatz National U.S. Army Air Forces Museum. This museum, located in Boyertown, Pennsylvania, tells a story of Carl Spatz's life and legacy, and there's no one better to tell that story than Keith Sywell. Yeah, Keith is a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps and a retired colonel. He retired in 2009. He was inspired by his father's service in the U.S. Army Air Force and the U.S. Air Force, and he's been fascinated with the airplanes of World War II since his childhood. An avid student of military history, his lifelong dream's been to preserve history and pass it on to future generations. And that is exactly what we're going to do today. Now, this episode is really cool because we're getting ready to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the United States Air Force, which started in 1947 when it separated from the Army. So this is going to be exceptional. Indeed it is. Can't wait. Let's get started right now. Keith Sywell, welcome to the show. It's great being here, Rick. Thanks. Before we jump into to General Spots, how about if you share a little bit about you and, and, and your career and how you ended up where you are? Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, not right when uh, the Earth began, but a little bit later after that. My dad was in the Army Air Force. His squadron was in San Francisco, ready to fly over Tinian when we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and then, of course, Nagasaki. That ended the war. They froze everybody in place. A few months later, he gets mustered out of the Army Air Force, goes back to his little hometown of Cunningham, Pennsylvania, looks around, says, no, I'm not doing this anymore, and came right back in and, and joined the uh, Air Force. So he became a uh, staff NCO, and then from there stayed in the Air Force until he retired in 1963, right out of the missile crisis. And we settled down in Great Valley, Pennsylvania. Fast forward, high school, college, joined the Marine Corps, I stayed in for 30 years. I retired in 2009 from the Marines as a full colonel and uh, did a couple other uh, great transition jobs. And then I basically stumbled into Boyertown one day. It's a little bit more than that, but uh, got into Boyertown one day, uh, was looking around for the Spots Museum that I knew had to be there, but there was no museum. And that's actually the first time I came up with the idea of wanting to change that because he had done so much. And it's it would be great to have a museum that would really be established on the basis of Spots legacy and of course, you know, my father's own actions uh, in the war and his service in the military had a lot to do with that ambition as well. So, Keith, when did it start? What year did you start the museum? Well, had the Articles of Corporation in August of uh, 2017. We did a groundbreaking ceremony of a building that's being leased to us that we're using for the museum on October 17th, 2018. We actually started the demolition of that building and taking over the 5,000 square feet that were allotted to us. Uh, probably in January of uh, 2019. And then through a lot of hard work and a lot of great support, we opened on October 2nd of 2021. Yeah, right around three years. Math for Marines, two years. <laughs> True fact. 
So I know when we talked about creating this podcast, John was pretty excited about Carl Spots for this 75th anniversary commemoration of the U.S. Air Force and, and fairly insistent that we include him early on in this schedule. I thought, okay, that's great. I, I was in the Air Force. I, I worked at the Air Force Academy as, uh, at a time. I, I knew that Carl was interred there at the, the cemetery there. But when I started looking to get ready to talking with you at just what this man accomplished, I mean, forget Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force. Everything he had done prior to that would have been a Enough for a career. Yeah, he really packed a lot in uh, this basically a standard 30, 35 year career or whatever. I mean, it was pretty amazing, especially a, a kid from a small uh, town like Boyertown uh, who did so many wonderful things and stood toe to toe with great luminaries like Winston Churchill, Eisenhower, Roosevelt, and so forth. Uh, he was present, at, the only American officer president present at all three surrender yeah. ceremonies. So, yeah, quite uh, quite the efforts. Uh, he's got an amazing legacy, he really does. Let's go back to the beginning because it's pretty impressive. In fact, he graduated from West Point in 1914. And then uh, shortly after that, he right. was part of the beginning of the Air Corps. I mean, can you give us a little bit of that very beginning? Because some of the officers came part and parcel as part of the Army Air Corps later on. But he was right two years right out of West Point and right, right at the beginning. Sure. Well, he, again, he, like you said, he graduated in uh, 1914 and was actually commissioned as second lieutenant in the infantry. And his first duty assignment was at the 25th ID out in Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. And uh, I think some things happened to him at, at West Point that made him decide he really didn't want to stay in mm -hmm. uh, the infantry for so long. Young men at that time, they're very enamored with this new service. I mean, flying these man-made machines, mm -hmm. and that was cutting-edge technology. Jumping right into an F-18 or an F-35 without really much of any kind of training or anything. I mean, they were really jumping into it and risking their own lives. He joins the Air Service, and uh, not too long after that, he gains his first you know, significant uh, incident action in the Mexican service campaign that went on uh, when, I guess, it was Pancho Villa who was making these raids across uh, the United States on the southern border. And he came into contact with many people that would be great luminaries of their own. MacArthur was down there at that time, Patton, uh, as well as Blackjack Pershing, which is real interesting. Spots wanted to get uh, General Pershing up into the air and show him what he could do. And, and he kept badgering uh, General Pershing. I and mean, finally, Pershing got a little abrupt with him and said, no, Lieutenant, I'll let you know when I want to go. That's a good there. story. And then, uh, of course, during World War One, you know, he started out as a fighter pilot. And uh, got three kills, as we understand. So, can you tell a, a little bit about you know his early combat experience? Yeah, interestingly enough, I mean, he was signed uh, to um, a fighter squadron in France, as you stated. But when he got there, just like all the other Americans, they wanted to get up in the air and be a hotshot pilot and you know knock down some German airplanes. But they said, "Oh, not not so fast, Carl. What you're going to do instead is you're going to develop mm -hmm. the training school, and you're going to be responsible for building the grounds." Uh, worry about flying an airplane later. And of course, he didn't like that too much. Nobody would, I guess. But he just decided, okay, well, I'm going to do the best job I possibly can. And he did. He took a job that nobody wanted and uh, made lemonade out of lemons. And that actually was the building block for uh, his future as a career officer, because he did that pretty much everywhere he went. And that's really how he developed his reputation. He, he was a first among firsts in terms of innovation, using technology, uh, 
to leverage a strategic power over any kind of uh, enemy or, or any kind of situation he was looking at. The little bit I was I was reading about him earlier today, I strategic is the word that kept coming back to me as I was reading through it all. He had an innate sense of how things would play out. It seems like to me, to my perception of it anyway from reading, he was about uh, 10 miles down the road further than anybody else was as he was seeing what was about to happen, right. you know, in North Africa, in, in, in the Mediterranean. Well, interestingly enough, if we could go back to like the 1920s, I mean, he did see a lot of things. Of course, he's in the air service. It was a brand new technology. It was a brand new environment, really. And so they were allowed to think way out of the box because mm -hmm. nobody thought about this stuff before. Right. So, you know, before airplanes came around, nobody thought about aerial refueling. <laughs> well, why would you need to? Right. Because <laughs> there weren't any airplanes. Uh, after World War One, some people started to think about it, but really it wasn't until the 1920s that people thought, hey, man, maybe we can get these airplanes up in the air a little bit longer if we refuel them somehow. As a matter of fact, in, in the 1920s, the longest record for keeping an airplane in flight up until Spots took his mm. crack at it was 45 hours. And uh, they did this question mark flight, a proof of concept test of aerial refueling. And they actually smashed that record that was done previously. 45 hours? Heck, they did 150 plus. Yeah, put that in context, 150 hours is more than six days in the air. You know, you've got to, you've got to eat, you've got to stay awake, you know, all those kinds of things that need to right. go on. Uh, and this really demonstrates the physical courage and moral courage that Spots had that really served him well uh, and the American people well. Well, you know... You mentioned about the fact that um, he was a major. You know, we have to understand the days and the times. He graduates from West Point in 1914, and he's a major by 1920. Okay, but he's not a lieutenant colonel until 1935, 15 years later. Any insight there? Uh, yeah, part of it was World War One because when the United States Army expanded to this level that it did, it gave people a lot of temporary ranks. You know, the, uh, the rank structure was based totally on seniority back then. So it was very slow. Yeah. Uh, look at Eisenhower. He's another example. Matter of fact, he used to complain that he was the <laughs> longest serving major in the entire army, which included the uh, the Air Service and the Army Air Force. Before we jump into uh, to the U.S. Air Force a bit, I'm I'm curious about the perception of these flyboys, you know, by the by the military at that time. Certainly in in World War One, but in that time when when Spots is coming up through. He's he's not getting unlimited support. I suspect there's some pushback from from Marines and Army and the folks on the ground. I, I kind of by comparison sometimes think of the Space Force today and some of the some of the pushback they get from the regular Air Force guys who are like, what's this all about? What was there some of that? Was he dealing with some jealousies and issues? Oh, absolutely. Because you have the air service now coming out of nowhere and an unproven air arm, right? Because the only thing anybody thought it could be used for was just observation, because we had done that in the Civil War with balloons. So the Army was looking at the Air Force as simply, or the Air Service, I should say, as simply a, an adjunct to their ability to uh, see the enemy where he is and, and call, for, try and get fire on a particular position and things like that. World War One changed that a little bit, actually quite a bit. And then the regular Army still looked at the Air Force as a competitor for its own internal money. Then you also had inter-service rivalries because you had the Navy and the Navy had its air arm and they were thinking in ways of aircraft carriers. 
And so everybody was just vying for um, the money, the resources. And don't forget, after 1929, you had the stock market crash, right, in October of 29. And then resources were continuously really difficult to obtain by any of the services just to survive. So, yeah, there was a lot of infighting. And then when you had uh, Billy Mitchell, uh, who was stating that air power is the absolute <laughs> war winner, you're not even going to need any of these armies and ships. And that that really uh, made a lot of people mad, jealous politically, in the military and everything else. So, yeah, everybody's clawing for resources, money and, and funding and training and everything. Men. All right, Keith, well, you know, we got the beginnings of his years. So let's kind of move towards uh, closer to World War Two. You know, in uh, 1929, he was switching over into the bombardment side as opposed to the fighter side. And again, he was doing those odd jobs and picking up the responsibility. But what I really found fascinating that he was over there in England during the Battle of Britain in 1939, even before the United States entered in the World War II. So can you give us a little insight between those, you know, maybe the late uh, 1920s to the beginning of uh, World War II? Sure. The Army Air Force or uh, the Army Air Corps at that particular time was looking at uh, strategic bombing and why was that going to be a big deal. And what they had to do is they kind of like had a hedge on things because when you're looking at uh, the United States after World War One, it became very isolationist. The reason was because of the outcome of World War One, because there was no lasting peace. It wasn't the war to end all wars, but they certainly wanted it to be for the U.S. So there was not a large heart pouring from the the American people to increase an in offensive capability. And those who had the foresight to see the level of uh, importance that the bombers could make had to try and put it in a defensive method. So that's why the Flying Fortress was really conceived, not necessarily as an overseas bomber, but really as a defensive bomber for the United States, able to hit ships out in the ocean. And that's really one of the first reasons why it was called the Flying Fortress, because it was supposed to take up the defensive concept of a fortress, but this one a flying one instead of a big concrete one on the ground on our coast. But in any event, you had really smart guys that were trying to be able to get these airplanes to fly long distances over water and be able to intercept enemy ships as they'd come across the Atlantic Ocean. So fast forward to 1940, you have the Battle of Britain ongoing, right? So Spots gets sent over there as kind of a liaison officer observer. And this is really interesting to me. And this just goes to show you that Spots was a great officer, uh, you know, lots of foresight and things like that, but everybody makes mistakes. So Spots is over there in Europe, and he's watching the Brit fight the Germans during the, the air war over in the, the Battle of Britain. And so the Brits were just clobbering the German bombers, and the bomber could not always get through. Spots sees that, and he's briefing Arnold, he's briefing everybody back there what's going on. Then the Brits try their own bombing, right? And they find the same thing when they tried doing daylight bombing. It didn't work for them. And of course, they didn't mm -hmm. have a lot of bombers to lose anyway. So they started to do night bombing. The two key things that the Battle of Britain showed us was one was that the bomber would not necessarily get through. The second thing was the key is the enemy's air defense. So what do we do? Mm -hmm. I, I, I can tell John, you, I, your, your mind's clicking mm -hmm. around on that. You probably see the same lesson there. So we go and do the same thing. Right. So we, we put up all these bombers and we don't have a fighter interceptor capability to really go toe to toe with the Luftwaffe. Matter of fact, when we first started, we were just doing bomber streams mm -hmm. over particular targets and getting 
beat really bad. That problem and the full solution set didn't come about until later on when Spots is head of the strategic air forces in Europe. And this guy by the name of Jimmy Doolittle comes around and says, you know what? Maybe we should just go ahead and attack the German Air Force while it's on the ground and forget about so much being escorts, but use the fighters as an offensive capability. So then you had the one-two punch that just couldn't be destroyed. At that point, that's what really brought us air superiority and air supremacy. Sorry for getting off the target like that so much, but... <laughs> no, that's good. It's good background because, it really is. you know, I'm trying to place General Spots, you know, now he's in, you know, England. Then he becomes head of the Army Air Force Combat Command at Washington, promoted to Major General. Then he's head of the 8th Air Force, mm -hmm. transferring to the European Theater in 42. And then he moves on down to be the commanding general of the U.S. Army Air Forces in the European Theater, like I said. So it's an amazing position. He seems to be in the key points in the major parts of the history of the war for air power. You know, uh, you said how important he was to... Uh, the end of the war, you know, particularly when we ended the war with bombing Japan with nuclear weapons, you know, kind of close out the war for us with him. And then, you know, what did he do between the time that he finished the war and then he became head of the Air Force as the first chief of staff of the Air Force in 1947? Well, sure. Let me just back up uh, real quick to, to 1944. One of, one of the interesting things is uh, Spots really did believe in air power, and of course, he had the, the ability to really uh, bring that to fore in his concepts as it was being developed into air supremacy and gained eventually air supremacy uh, over the Germans. And that allowed him to do and um, advocate, which we've been doing really since uh, early 1944, was the critical vulnerability that the Germans had. And that was not their mobility, but their critical vulnerability was fuel, oil. And Spots pushed for the destruction of the oil and synthetic oil production capability of Germany almost right away. And fast forward, he did that. And by the end of the war, just like anything else, hey, I'm really good at this. Uh, really got a good team here. We know what we're doing. And uh, yeah, well, we beat the Germans with uh, this war winning uh, strategic concept. Now, at the same time, the, the war in Europe was, was just about winding down and uh, finishing up. Obviously, the war in the Pacific was really just starting to get overly hot. So, you know, there was an interesting little break at the end of the war. He, came, he was able to come back to the United States and had the welcome home parties and the parades and things like that. But he didn't have a lot of time to, uh, to rest and relax because he was over in the Pacific pretty quick. Yeah. I think our audience would be interested in... Uh understanding a little bit about his time as chief of staff. Now, he was appointed by Truman to be head of the Air Force as the chief of staff of the Air Force in September 1947. He retired, you know, in June of 1948. So he didn't have quite two years. Right. But, you know, can, you can see what's happening with the Space Force now. you got to get a new uniform. you got to get a flag. you got to get a song. You know, you got to get, uh, you know, different uh, ranks and you know, figure all that out. Can you give us uh, maybe some insight on that time while he served as chief of staff? Yeah, his job as chief of staff was really in developing and seeing through the transition between the Army Air Force and into the United States Air Force. And it's funny because that was, you know, basically that was one of his to-do lists. Okay, what kind of uniform are we going to wear? How long is it going to take to transition to the uniform? But I think what he was smart enough to do was, uh, you know, that's like you said, it's only about a year that he had to do all this, right? Or maybe two years. And fortunately for him, he was surrounded by a lot of uh, 
great general officers. So he was able to uh, really focus on the transition. And, you know, two years was not a lot of time to do that. I think his, his legacy, he understood, was coming to an end as far as his active service. And he was just busy passing the football on to everybody else, making sure that they understood what he wanted to do and what his, uh, what his vision was. Now, the other thing um, you know, that he really was working on was the, uh, the Mobility Air Command. I think he had the right people in place to deal with the Berlin Airlift. Uh, people talk about the, uh, the missile crisis and how close we came to the missile crisis. We we're also real, pretty close coming to war with the Berlin Airlift matter, and, and it was our ability to uh, logistically supply Berlin by the air that really beat the Russians down to not being able to move through with their objectives, which was to yeah, take over all interesting. Europe. You know, now, you know, as we kind of get towards the end of the program, sure. you know, the Air Force now and, and how much it differs from, you know, the Air Force that Carl Spatz saw. Would this be the Air Force that, that he would have foretold? Does it look like what he might have imagined it would grow into? Yes, I think so. He's not known as the father of American refueling for nothing. And I would say that capability the United States had, nobody else could match that in the world. Nobody could do aerial refueling that we did. So everything that we see today with our Air Force, the amazing strategic capability to project power worldwide because of aerial refueling. Okay, The strategic air command that LeMay took over, well, that's a direct line construct from the development of those things that spots put in action. So it, it really is uh, just fascinating to think that if, if we didn't have him, you know, maybe somebody else would have thought of concepts. Maybe they wouldn't have. I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. But, but today's modern Air Force with its tremendous capability, and I think even pushing it further in, into space, that, that's a natural line too. It's all, it's all a natural line really that, that to me extends from January 1st, 1929. And the ability to have a vision, to take that vision, turn it into results, and use the technology that you have as the leverage to project power to make it into a strategic advantage that nobody else can match throughout your own country's future. It's hard to beat. I'm, I'm curious, what were the last couple of years of his life like, mm -hmm. right? Passes away in 1974, it's post-Vietnam. He's, he's been a man of, of air war his entire life. And was it quiet at the end? Did he have time to sit and reflect or? Yeah, I guess he did. I, he was a, an editor for Newsweek. He was the military editor for Newsweek magazine at the time. And uh, he kept busy doing that. And he became very involved in the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, and I think he was really big on understanding that the youth is obviously the key to our future. And that's where you need to develop those types of young men and women to be our future leaders and defenders of our freedom and liberty well into the next, hopefully, next millennium. So, I, John, I think maybe it's time for us to to let uh, Keith go. Before we do, Keith, though, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't give you just a quick chance anyway. Anybody watching who may be in the neighborhood of uh, Boyertown or headed that way over the summer passing through, let, let them know where this museum is and, and how to get to you. Thank you. Yeah, the, the museum is located in Boyertown, Pennsylvania, 28 Warwick Street. Please go to our website, www.spotsmuseum.org. It's an educational institution that is really developed for a target audience between the ages of say 12 and 35 to teach them about General Spots, what he did, what it was like to be in the Army Air Forces and the legacy of the men and women who contributed to victory in World War II. Take a look at our website oh, and please great. join us. Well, I, I can't imagine if the, if the 
general wasn't here to tell his own story. He's got a pretty good person doing the job for him. Absolutely. And, uh, I, I think this was uh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Keith, thank uh, you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Rick. And it was my pleasure. Thank you, Keith Sywell, for joining us on this episode. You know, John, that was really cool. I really loved getting to know more about Carl Spots, a name I was familiar with from my own time in the Air Force. I had no idea, though, just how integrated he was into so much of the Air Force story. Well, of course, as an Air Force veteran, I've had a lot of books that I've read that uh, talk about Carl Spatz, but uh, Keith did an exceptional job. His knowledge of the background, the history, I mean, it was point on. And I really learned a lot from listening to his segments on what he knew about this amazing man who had a legacy in our beginning of our United States Air Force. Well, that'll do it, folks, for episode one. Thanks so much for listening to Behind the Wings. And be sure to visit the Wings website, wingsmuseum.org, to join the conversation. You can also access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Head over to iTunes now or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot, and we really do appreciate it. See you next time on Behind the Wings.